This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I'm joined by Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, we did it again. We're here again. We are. Another another uh, Monday, huh? What is, is this I... show? What show is this? 12,000? Something like that? Yeah, no. I think we're like in the 30s or maybe 40s. <laughs> I forget. We're in season three, but I don't it's, know what episode we are. And that's probably not a good thing. It's like 400 of them. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about, I was reflecting on this over the, the course of the weekend. And I, I, I was wondering what your answer to this would be. Um, it's a thoughtful question. So are you ready? <laughs> it's a thoughtful question that I've had no time to think about. So yeah, yeah. let's do yeah, it. Yeah. So when you're thinking of um, throughout your career, you've had, you know, probably multiple mentors. What do mm. you look for in a mentor? Like what types of characteristics are you looking for? So I thanks for that question. Not That was not so bad. I don't know if I've had mentors, really. Y you're I think I've had. Of, yeah, there's many people who say that. No, for I real. I've had. So I've had people that I that I look to as great examples, people's sure. leaders and, and, and great managers and things that I try to pull from them. So some, you know, obviously the, the big ones being people that operate with a sense of integrity that is on display, yeah. right? They, they've had opportunities to, to not uh, operate with integrity and have chosen yeah. to do the right thing. People that I find their intellect and the way that they can break down certain problems, brilliant. And, uh, and and people are just really good humans that I like to work with. Yeah, I have had you know we talk about the difference between mentor and sponsors, uh -huh. but and and so I have had folks in organizations that have you know they're the kind of people that when I'm not around they're telling people how awesome I am, and <laughs> that is <laughs> well in, in a night I'm just saying as a as a yeah, way yeah I know what I know the you, way I was you're just supposed to operate I'm like, yeah you're awesome maybe, I get it I know maybe Everybody they've never actually Rob. said that. And those are and yeah. those are few and far between, but you know it immediately, right? Like yeah. you know that that person has your back immediately. And so yeah. uh, I've never really considered anyone uh, kind of a formal mentor, but I really try to pull from people that I that I really respect. Yeah, I'm hearing that across the board. To be honest with you, like just like you said, m the people that I've talked to have said that they have people in their life 
whether it's in the workplace or even outside of the workplace, that they, you know, draw things from, like you said, that they look, Mm -hmm. admire, that they definitely people that might have their back, but they don't have a specific mentor that they meet on a a cadence or that they, that their specific goals that they're working, that their mentor kind of challenges them to. And I I think that's really interesting because I think there is, um, I think there's value in that. And we talk about it, you know, we've talked about it with Tara Robertson and some of our other guests. So just something I was curious about. Thank you for sharing. Have you participated in a in a mentor program where you were brought together with with someone before? I have participated. No, I mean, I was part of a leadership development program. I created programs, you know, my prior mm-hmm. company, like accelerated de- development programs and such. You know, through learning development, I've also created like mentor, you know, peer-to-peer mentorship programs and things like that. I personally have never myself, I feel, I don't think I've gone through, I can't think off the top of my head of like going through a mentorship program. Yeah. No, um, I just wondered because I know I participated in, in those programs from the other side where I'm a mentor to someone yes. and, and sometimes they work. I think they're, I think they're kind of coin flips, whether or not they work or not. So I was yeah. just interested as well. So yeah. we should talk more about this, Nadia. I'm interested yeah. to hear your mentorship experience, but right now. We yeah. should get to our deets and uh, you can, deets. yeah, let's, let's talk about a news story. What's going on? So New York Times reported that Walgreens lost their contract with the state or is losing their contract with the state of California over their stance on the abortion pill. So mm-hmm. Governor Newsom of California stated that the state will not renew a multi-million dollar deal with Walgreens after the chain said it would not distribute an abortion pill in 21 states that had threatened legal actions. Um, this, of course, came out of last year when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the decision that established a federal constitutional right to abortion. There were over 21 states where there are Republican attorneys general that threatened legal action against pharmacy chains that sold this particular abortion pill. So this is just an interesting, an interesting story. Uh, where this company is in the middle of basically what I think is like an intense political and legal debate. People mm-hmm. are pissed. Um, I think you know how I feel, mm-hmm. uh, right? It's it's disappointing. And I think that these corporations are really terrified of being caught up in legal action, that they're willing to sacrifice like what is right. And, you know, <laughs> well, that this... wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, right. And, right. That's true. And, you know, what is right in this kind of what we're talking about, this topic is that allowing women to decide what is best for them in their own bodies is critical. So, I'll pause there because like I could go on and on, but but Rob, what are your thoughts? So we talked about Walgreens a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about the USA Today research on uh, executive representation in in large companies. Walgreens was one of the companies that refused to aid in that effort in terms of giving their data to USA Today. But Walgreens is led by the CEO is Rosalind Brewer. And you're familiar with Rosalind Brewer. Roz, as as her friends call her, I'm Uh I'm not a friend. Is the only black woman to lead a Fortune 500 company. Oh, interesting. So she's an impressive person. You do not become the only black woman to lead a Fortune 500 company if you are not exceptional, if you are not an absolute corporate superstar stud, right? So I can assume that she's thinking about this and, Mm. and, you know, and they're working through this. We've only heard things from spokespersons. So what's interesting is that we have not seen Roz Brewer out front discussing this. She hasn't appeared in the articles that I've seen. I think the one that you forwarded me from the New York Times. Yeah. And I just really think she needs to be more visible in explaining what the strategy is and what Walgreens is doing here. Because 
it's not clear all of these companies are going to have to make a decision, right? So CVS, Amazon, they are not part of this. It's just Walgreens that's just getting beaten like a pinata uh, by the governor of California. So it seems to me like some sort of collective action could have been helpful here, right? So all the companies get together and say, look, if we're not allowed to distribute this particular medication, then we won't do blah, 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 right? So there's some power that they could have together in, in trying to do this. But um, right. all these companies are going to face it. And so we got really got to start to think mm -hmm. about, are we going to wake out all these companies or are we going to try to figure out a solution? You know, but if you're silent, it's presidential election campaign season, right? And so we, so mm -hmm. Governor Newsom, right? He's still thinking there's a chance that President Biden takes one of those Mitch McConnell spills and uh, is not part of the race, right? So he's that's the way that he's going to be continue to behave over the next few months. Yeah. And so Walgreens really has to do a better job of communicating what their plan is here. Yeah, to I mean, absolutely that. And I, you know, all over the socials, people are encouraging folks to switch to their pharmacies from like Walgreens to other pharmacies, right? To which right, one? Like you said, people are saying like CVS and Target, but it's like, okay, I mean, those are going to be also at risk. So, right. Um, you know, I'd be really curious. You're right. I think it's like we need to understand what is the broader, what are, what's the impact here and what are the decisions that these corporations are going to make because it we impacts said, and it affects a lot of people. You know, we said well, this is one of the things that was going to happen, right? We talked about this last year when the Dobbs decision yeah. came down. Businesses did not want this. Like they yeah. absolutely do not want this. And it's, I mean, this is a terrible for interstate commerce, right? So yeah. just from on that, that alone, yeah. it, it's really troublesome. So uh, let's, let's hang back here and let's just yeah. try to see and hopefully, hopefully they can come to some sort of a, uh, of a conclusion and, and, and actually offer this kind of healthcare to women. Right. Sure. Sure. All right. Shall we go on to the next? Sure. Sure. I, uh, less intense, but, uh, HBR's new issue, <laughs> I like that <laughs> there are significant discrepancies between how well employees and HR leaders believe their firms are doing when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. According to two recent Gallup surveys, so recent, like in the last year, of employees and CHROs for 122 large companies, only 31% of employees feel their company is committed to enhancing racial justice or equity in the workplace, but 84% of CHROs report that their firms are increasing their investment in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah, what... It <laughs> So CHROs are like, we're doing great. We're doing awesome. Yeah. We're pumping a lot of money in here. And the employees are saying, yeah, not necessarily feeling it. Yeah. Oh, man. Take a deep breath. So this study doesn't <laughs> surprise me. I mean, did you want to give your thoughts first? So just real quick, uh, I will. Uh, you know, So the, the surveys were completed a, a year ago, right? Okay. So another piece of context. And yeah. so it's obviously worse now, <laughs> like whatever the, whatever the numbers or whatever the discrepancies were, then you can imagine if they're worse now. And so from my perspective, I always think about, it's obvious that there's a lack of, of the ability of communicating that whatever the investment is that people are making in diversity, equity, inclusion, they're not communicating it very well. They're not using data. Um, so all of the investment in the world, it doesn't, it doesn't help you yeah. um, if you're not able to clearly articulate what you're doing, why setting goals, share, you know, building and sharing stories with data. Um, so it just shows me that most companies that are investing in DEI aren't doing data and measuring and reporting well. Yeah, I think it's that. And there's like this other element of like, you're not communicating or being transparent with your employees because if your employees are feeling, like if you're investing this much money 
maybe the data is not there, but you can go, you could hire someone to help you get the data. And then mm-hmm. the the element is like, you have the data now, you have to, tr- you have to be able to be transparent and share that with your employees. So they feel that there's trust in this, this process. And I, that's where also I feel like there's a gap is that of course, employees are feeling this way and there's that there's just not alignment with em- employees and leaders and the organizations and doing this work because they're not being communicated and they're not be they're, the information is not being shared with them in terms of what the rep- the makeup of the organization is or what the good work is. And so I just really encourage leaders when you do this work, once you get the data and you have your measurements and you put all these things in place and your strategy in place, communicate that with your internal employees and associates. It is really that simple. And once you are able to communicate and transpa- be transparent, then you have kind of the, the foundation to be able to share that publicly. And I, I just, I'm, I don't know what the hiccup is. I know there's a lot of factors, including just like fear. And I think this fear around sharing what present state is, what the current state of your landscape is. I'm getting all heated here. You think that this is a rant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not the this is not the end of the show, Nadia. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, just to warn you there. But a lot of really great stuff there. So I, I I'll I'll I'm gonna stop you there, Nadia, because I think you you hit on it in terms of like the key being there's clearly a disconnect and companies need to do a better job of communicating. Yeah. So thank you so much. That's it for the deets. We'll be right back with corporate strategist, thought leader, and author, Jonathan Kaufman. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is Jonathan Kaufman. Jonathan is a prominent thought leader, educator, and strategist in the fields of diversity and inclusion, organizational strategy, and personal growth. Jonathan was born with cerebral palsy, which has been an integral part of his personal and professional journey. Through his consulting and coaching company, Jay Kaufman Consulting and Jay Kaufman Coaching, he helps individuals and corporations develop new strategies for success, has worked with corporations, governments, and nonprofits globally, including Walmart, the National Business and Disability Council, and the U.S. Department of Labor. Jonathan is also a Forbes contributor, where he writes about the intersection of disability, business, innovation, and culture. He's a sought-after speaker. He is keynoted at events such as the United Nations Social and Economic Development Forum, and the AARP Diversity and Aging and 21st Century Conference. Personally, whether it's hiking in the Ecuadorian highlands, skiing down a mountain, or rappelling down the side of a cliff in the Middle East, to the simplicity of tying his own shoes one-handed, Jonathan pushes himself and the idea that anything is possible given the will. I left out so many things there. Jonathan Kaufman, welcome to Inclusive Collective. It's great to have you. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hi, Jonathan. It's so good to chat. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Rob just introduced you and you really have such a vast and extensive background, which really seems to inform um, the passion that you have around the work that you do. You know, I'll dive into the first question. Um, You speak and write on the intersection of disability, business innovation and culture. Many of my favorite concepts 
And historically, um, some differences like people living with disabilities and folks who are maybe neurodivergent um, have not been included in the workplace. So I'm curious, and this is a pretty broad question, but feel free to take it where you want to. But how does a business become a disability confident organization? So like, for example, if you're a business leader and you've never thought about these in terms of just in general, or you're uncomfortable talking about disability, where do you start? I think you start with the F word, fear. One, an organization has to be radically honest and say, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And I'm always of the philosophy, progress, not perfection. And you're not going to get it right. And understanding that this is a journey. And when you recognize it's a journey and you recognize, yes, we're going to have some successes, we're going to have some failures, and we're going to have some bumps along the way, that's okay. But I think it's incredibly important to sort of head, really sort of face the issue head on. And then there's a phrase that we all sort of use both in the clinical world, um, therapeutically, which is psychological safety. Now that's mm -hmm. been used within the sort of corporate environment. And in this time of change, I mean, we're really at this moment now where I think coming out of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, I have a father who's an immunologist. He said, well, COVID will never end. But, <laughs> but I will say this is the fact that we're in this sort of new normal, but it's changed the way we worked. The proof of concept is there in terms of remote work, but that's changed the way how we think about work and how we engage in the, in the idea of DEI, in the idea of accessibility, and the idea of thinking about how do we create a new management style that really embraces psychological safety. So disability has to be a part of that. And I've, I've always said, and, and I say this ad nauseum at this point, um, disability is the essence of diversity runs across race, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic, sexual orientation. It's the only minority group anyone can join at any time. And if we're lucky enough to live long enough, well, welcome to the club. Right, right. Yeah, I want to I stick to that. I mean, we talk a lot about the future of work on mm -hmm. this show, uh, you know, with regard to remote work, companies asking people to return to the office these days, hybrid work and flexibility. How do you think about what work should look like, not just for people that have physical limitations, but uh, I'm also thinking about uh, how do different forms of work impact people's mental health and, and when what's changing. I mean, look, I have been, my PhD work was in the anthropology of work. I looked at the culture of work. Now, this was going back to the early 2000s, which is a very different environment. But I've been thinking about this for over 20 years and watching it in real time. I think what has to happen is a recognition that we are in a decentralized workspace, that the idea of the office is now has to be reconstructed to say, well, what does this really mean, this idea of work and this concept of what is important? How do we, how do we as an organization, you know, the proverbial we, um, stay motivated, stay productive, and focus on culture building. Mm. That, those are the challenges. Be, being that those are the challenges, the next step is saying, okay, how do we create what I, I always sort of love this, sort of Reed Hoffman's idea of this idea of 
the, the notion of the alliance and the idea that, that, that employers and employees have to come to a detente. They have to understand one another. They have to communicate with one another. It's critically important. It's not a top-down approach anymore. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It's now thinking about management style in which there really can be open dialogue. Because if there isn't open dialogue, well, you know, you're, you're screwed. Yeah. So what do we think about, how do we develop a new understanding of relationships. That's where I think, you know, my grandfather who ran a business for 50 years, over 50 years, used to say to me this all the time. He said, business is about people. And he said this years ago. And this <laughs> of philosophy still works. It doesn't matter about the amount of technology, whether we're thinking about AI or we're thinking about automation in any way. It still is about this sort of human concept of saying, how do we bring intersect all of those things? And what is it that you need ultimately? What is it that we as an organization need? What do, what do individuals need? And how do we function to push forward? So what do you, I'm just so curious then, what, like in terms of operationalizing this, because mm -hmm. the theory is so, right? Like we have the statistics, we have the data, we have the research. And then when I work with clients, like I just see it so hard to operationalize because we, as we know, change doesn't happen overnight. Behaviors and mindsets, it's hard to change. But how do we then operationalize this? Because what you're saying, I love that it's a, it's about people. It's about connection and it's about in the intersectionality of, of all of these items. How do we, that are, are you seeing organizations really being able to operationalize this and do you have like examples? I think that there are companies, I think we're at the beginning. And I think where companies are is because you have to remember the last three years, everything was triage. You know, one of the things in terms of my own practice is I would be working with, whether it be CEOs or people who are mid-management are saying, okay, I don't know what the hell we're doing. I don't know where we are. So it was a sort of constantly triage moment where we would be in this moment of emergency. Now we're coming out of it. We have to take a breath and say, okay, let's reassess the landscape. In reassessing the landscape, that is when you can operationalize it. I don't think we're at the moment yet, but that being said, even though I say it, companies sort of have to operationalize it because they have to function. So we're in this moment now where companies are shedding. I mean, they really are. There's lots right. of layoffs. So that's an economic uncertainty is providing a lot of anxiety and angst about what's next. That being said, this is the time. This is actually the moment to say, all right, because there's all this anxiety and angst, where do we look for next in terms of what your company actually needs to do? And then come out with a sort of priority list, a to-do list. From there, then you can get a little bit more granular and saying, okay, so here are the goals. You know, I, I always go back to Andy Grove's idea of OKRs, objectives and key results. Mm -hmm. So here's the objectives. And one of the things that was beautiful, and I got the luxury of speaking to Andy before he died. Oh. And he said, so Jonathan, this is the most important thing you have to know. It's the how. The how is the strategy by which one uses. Now, because there is a combination of things in which to do that, one has to employ that. But the ultimate goal is to say, 
let's always come back to the objectives. The objective, the objective, the objective. And so I think now where people are, where companies are, at least where my clients are, is like saying, okay, I need to figure out what the objective is. What that is, is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't know. Right. So we're trying to figure it out. This leads into something else that I was thinking about with regard to your work. In a recent three-part series, you argue, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase very broadly here, that if business can do accessibility, disability integration well, then they can do most other things well. So as businesses look for a competitive edge, how does what you call the disability narrative offer a way forward? Uh, and even, even with regard to remote work, how does that offer a way forward? I look, I think one of the interesting things about the disability narrative is the idea that there's always this constant need of iteration. Because when you have a lived experience of disability, you're constantly trying to iterate for a world that wasn't made for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was Mr. cerebral palsy. I'm always trying to sort of figure out how do I negotiate the world? Because the world wasn't designed for me. So what one has to think about in this future of work where things are changing at a rapid pace, how do you think creatively? How do you think in a way where creative thinking and creative knowledge as, as becomes a premium and that's where you can draw upon this lived experience mm. and, and also when you think about accessibility it's really you know disability in itself is a design problem more so than anything else yeah there are medical issues but it's because the world the built world around you isn't made for you so now you have to think about, it. okay, we're in this future of work where work is decentralized, where we have to figure out, okay, in our homes, our homes become our workplace, becomes our play space, it becomes yeah. where everything. Our, <laughs> our, everything all at once. Yeah. So that creates a whole number of, a myriad of issues that we haven't really dealt with before. So when I go back to this idea of saying, the disability narrative, this lived experience, lends itself to greater management strategy. Mm. You just have to find it. And that's really one of the, I think, one of the rays that I'm really sort of looking at is saying, let's look at it from a different perspective. Sure. Jonathan, I'm so curious, too, about the data. So many folks living with disabilities, many oftentimes um, I come across companies where they don't necessarily track the data appropriately or accordingly. And then there's a number of employees that are living with invisible differences, right? Um, invisible disabilities. And so I'm curious um, in, in the work that you do, can you talk about what are some of the efforts that are going on right now to help better develop uh, the data and the metrics on disabilities. Yeah, I mean, I've written about this and I'm actually involved with it. So one of the, the best examples of this is the Valuable 500 based out of the UK. So one of their focus, so their organization was to get 500, um, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies who bought in, CEOs, chairman bought into the whole idea of disability as a value proposition. But one of their focal points for 2023 and beyond is data. What are the metrics? How do we measure data mm -hmm. around disability? Because one of the ideas is, okay, so how do we create a disability, you know, 
um, now that you talked about the disability confident culture, but a disability friendly culture where mm-hmm. people feel comfortable enough to disclose because, and, and there won't be retribution right. if right. they do. So right. it's that comfort level, but also feeling that level of, okay, this is a benefit to me. This isn't a hindrance. Mm-hmm. And then we collect that data. So, so there are certainly one organization that's doing it. Accenture is another. Okay. organization that's been involved with it. Um, the U.S. Department of Labor, you know, ODEP, the Office for Disability Employment Policy, has been doing it for a while. The Kessler uh, Foundation has been doing it. So there are several organizations that are out there, but I do think that the Valuable 500 has really been focused on the business community and getting those metrics because without metrics, you can't have the data. And without the data, you really can't Say, okay, what is it that we have to look for specifically? And then when you talked about invisible disabilities or non-apparent disabilities, that again goes back to feeling comfortable. ERGs, employee resource groups, business re- group, business resource groups, specifically affinity groups of those kinds are perfect petri dishes mm. for being able to do that. It's a wonderful place. And I think that's sort of where companies have to mind if they don't have one, create because yeah, you can absolutely kind of understand from the employees' perspectives, what are some needs or accommodations that uh, might be needed um, for for some of those folks? So that's great. Yeah, last week, Jonathan, I, I wanted to ask you since you're here. We talked about I don't know if you had seen this, but um, Lego had introduced a line of characters with visible. Okay, you're nodding. A, a line of characters with visible disabilities. I was just curious on your thoughts more generalized, right? So as companies try to be more inclusive and representative for things like this, what do they watch out for? What, since you actually saw this one, what did you think of that, that introduction and what kind of guidance do you give companies on things like this? Well, one, I thought it was great because it's all about representation. I and mean, you're talking about the sort of diversity of representation and being able to have something um, like Legos is really great. And when you're talking about using products that is designed for early intervention, what this does is it then acclimates young children to say that the the fact is there is such thing as human diversity. I always scratch my head at saying, wait a minute, there's diversity in nature. Why can't we figure this out as human beings? This is really a major flaw, Uh, but I loved it. Uh, again, you know, you should have heard from certain corners of the United States how woke this was. Hey, you know, that's political. To me, it's sort of problematic in the sense of this is about understanding who we are in terms of diverse, the diversity of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. And if you have greater representation earlier in one's development, it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Right. You said corners of the United States. And it actually is the corner of the United States, right? Which where, where that comes from, right? So you said, uh, one of the states <laughs> my sister lives in in Florida. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, um, so I guess we're having these ongoing conversations because they're seeing it in real time yeah. with my niece and nephews in school. Right. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's, I, 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 it's there. That being said, it's great. 
Um, and then more, I mean, more recently, QVC came out with, they announced um, Selma Blair is sort of their accessibility champion, and they're going to have a, a program and they're providing accessible products. And something like that, as ubiquitous as QVC is fantastic. So the, the, the accessible marketplace, I mean, I call it the disability economy because it's an intersection of culture, product, um, and management. And, and I believe that it is growing. Yeah. So I, I believe the idea is growing exponentially. And it's interesting because it's something we all join. I mean, it's almost like, uh, you know, AARP. If you get old enough, okay, you become a member. Great. Becoming a member shouldn't be a fearful. It's just, okay, how do we create a world that's inclusive that will be benefits that will benefit you ultimately? And I always say, look, with disability, sometimes you're a permanent resident, sometimes you're a visitor, mm -hmm. and sometimes you're, you know, you're just a tourist. Um, and those types of, and the way in which you sort of think about it, or whether you have a family member, or it, it, it impacts you, it impacts all of us in some way, shape, or form. We don't see it all the time. We don't view it all the time. But it is fascinating. I mean, I always think about, I always tell people this story. I said, you know, when I see people, when I speak and like, how many of you text? And everyone sort of raises their hands. It's ubiquitous. I said, well, you know, texting was created at Gallaudet University in 1976. These sort of for the deaf community. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody uses it. So it becomes part of the parlance of our daily life. Disability is the lingua franca in which we live, we inhabit. And no one really knows that. So interesting. Your latest article for Forbes uh, is a tribute to the late disability rights activist, Judy Human. Yeah. What would you want our listeners to know about Judy? What is one thing that you're reflecting on um, due to her passing? I mean, I met Judy when I was about 19 years old. She was tough as nails to me because I was <laughs> getting into this space and she's like, she was like, peppering me with questions and questions and questions. I had called, I had known somebody who knew her and, and that we sort of reached it. She was always on the phone. Um, she was a force of nature. Um, you know, she wasn't the only person, but what she did and what she spearheaded, I mean, she was a, a New Yorker, which is always near and dear to my heart. So she had that, mo that sort of New York moxie but she was an incredible visionary. And that's the way I saw her. And I wrote about the idea that there's been a lot of tributes to her, but I was interested in Judy as the future, from a futurist perspective, because mm. what her vision and what she saw from the rehabilitation, you know, the 504 Rehabilitation Act to the ADA, to the UN Convention, that will have a ripple effect in a multitude of ways, both in business and beyond. And I do think what she understood, and I sat on a couple of boards with her and listened to her speak um, with a lot of reverence and saying, okay, this is a woman that has a lot of history and saw the fighting. Mm -hmm. Now that there's tremendous change happening, and that's due to this, I think, the, this sort of ubiquity of the digital economy. What is it about Judy's message that is so valuable and will continue to be valuable. And I think just people should read her memoir. It's great. Um, should watch her TED Talk. But understand that we have to understand our history to move forward. So by understanding our history, 
it's incredibly important. And what people can cherry pick from her, well, each, each person will be different. But she led an extraordinary life. And it, as, as I said in the article, it's apropos that her actual surname is human because she was a true humanist. And, and her impact not only affects the disability community, it affects all of us. Right. Yeah, I was, I was going down a, a rabbit hole with her podcast this, this week as well. And so I would encourage yeah. others to, to, to listen, to check that out. And um, really interesting. And there, there's a lot of material there. So really great. So thanks, thanks for uh, offering that perspective, Jonathan. As we close out, what uh, resources, so either books, podcasts, or interesting to you these days that you could offer our listeners is something that they should definitely be checking out. Um, and it could be for the disability space or the future of work, whatever, whatever's interesting yeah, to you. There's so much. I mean, you know, I love Adam Grant, you know, he's a professor at, uh, at Wharton and I love, I mean, I try and read everything I can and I read stuff outside of disability per se. Um, I, I'm really interested, um, in sort of social sciences. Uh, um, and so I try and find whatever, you know, my, my philosophy is whatever interests you. Mm. And there's always, how do you make connections? That is important. And I, I like people to be as broad as possible because one of the things I've learned is I'm always making connections. I'm trying to connect the dots. And that always fosters new ideas and new concepts. So not to be siloed. Mm. So my, my advice to everybody is read, learn, see, explore. I love that. Lead, learn. Read, explore. Read, I mean, exploration. That's what, you know, it's, Curious. I'm an explorer by nature and I always will be. I love that. Thank you for offering that. Jonathan Kaufman, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective this week. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. Thank Truly. You. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back for our calm reflections and our raves and rants. Welcome back, folks. We just finished chatting with Jonathan Kaufman. Rob, I really appreciate um, Jonathan's just everything he said, especially this like last bit of like what he encourages people to do. He, he had shared with us, you know, he encourages people to lead, learn, read and explore. And I love that because to me, that's like this be curious, like have this growth mindset and learn about something that maybe is different for you, from you or for you. Um, and so I really appreciate this, this reminder of that. What yeah. were your takeaways? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I thought like you, uh, I was struck by some of the things that he said. He talked about that his father or grandfather operated a business 50 years ago. Yeah. And he said, it's all about, you know, it, business is all about people and the fact that you know so it was just i was just laughing as he was saying it was like yeah we we've kind of known this for a really long time right no, nothing and, new right <laughs> but the great thing and for you and i who practice as consultants and walk into organizations i think that we really get distracted from that very very simple point and if you just start to center what you're trying to do in terms of people, I think the answers are sometimes obvious. And so when we talk about one of the things I get really excited about in terms of the disability 
narrative that Jonathan talks about, it's if you're centering folks with disabilities, it just causes, it has all these ripple effects in terms of companies' innovation, their ability to be problem solvers in terms of, in terms of like iterating and, and, and ideating on, on new things and new solutions. And really just opens up a lot of different avenues that can help lead to competitive success. And so okay. love talking to Jonathan. And, you know, we're, I think we're already, play, we're, we're going to have him back soon, right? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I would love for him to come back. Yeah, he doesn't know he this. He has yet. written such great articles. There's so much insight to 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 take away from him. So for sure. All right, what time is it, Rob? Well, you know what time it is. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna rant and rave. Yeah, I'm gonna rant because we always like to end on a positive note. I am ranting, yeah. right? Yes, you are ranting. Today. I'm ranting. Okay, so maybe maybe this isn't much of a rant. Maybe it's more of a concern. But Nadia, I'm worried about the rhetoric on China. So a couple of weeks ago, I joked about how Joe Biden was shooting down balloons and everyone was having a good time with it. And it seemed to be the one thing that all Americans of all political persuasions can agree on, the fact that we all don't like China and we're really, really mad at China about everything at this point. And in the past couple of weeks, we've seen a series of hearings in Washington where both Democrats and Republicans agree that TikTok is the biggest problem uh, facing our country, right? And so one rule I have is that if all of our elected officials agree on something, then the opposite is probably true, right? Oh, that's my that's right? your, like, examples equation. include. Yeah, examples include the Iraq War, the idea uh, that housing prices never go down, the idea that Will Smith is our is our country's most beloved actor, right? Oh, like boy. these are things that everyone agrees on, and it turns out Chris not Rock to be true. Will disagree with that. <laughs> so I would just so my thought here is just you know everyone needs to cool it a bit, right? So I think about. Yeah. The folks that I know, I know some folks that work for at least the American company of TikTok, and the notion that they're sitting around thinking about ways to mm-hmm. use that data and their algorithm to turn American teenagers against the government strikes me as completely absurd, right? Teenagers are always against the government. Yeah. It's cool to be against the government. You should be against the government when you're a teenager. It's certainly dangerous. And also, you know, the, the TikTok could be dangerous if, if, if applied the wrong way. All social media is dangerous. Uh-huh. But we need to be a little bit more measured in our discussion. At best, I would say the Discord is getting a little bit intellectually lazy. And at worst, it seems like it could be dangerous to not only our Chinese friends that we live with here, but also everyone in this country of Asian descent. You know, we don't, yeah. we're not super nuanced in our understanding of race in this country. Um, and so, so anyway, that's my, I, I just wish at some point we could have reasonable conversations about anything. Yeah. All right. That's a good rant. I'll take that one. <laughs> It's like a semi-rant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me rave. I mean, it's going to sound like a rant at first, but oh, no. it ends up being a rave. So um, a black couple in California has settled a lawsuit with a real estate appraiser who may accuse of being of giving their home a low valuation because of their race. So you may recall this back in 2020, the Austins, their house was valued at about $1 million, I think they, um, in California, mm-hmm. uh, much less than they had actually expected. And they asked for another appraiser. And this time they had a white friend pose at their California home a- as the owner. And it was mm. valued at nearly $1.5 million. Clever. Um, so apparently 92.4% of home appraisers are white. And there have been a number of studies done where homes in predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhoods um, are routinely undervalued. So I'm pissed about it, but I'm really happy for the Austin family for getting justice from a very systemic issue that is still apparent in the U.S. What did they get? It was undisclosed. Oh. But I hope they got a shit ton. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) But I hope they got a shit ton. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but there's still so much to go through to get that shit ton, as you would say. Of course. Yeah. 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 All right, folks, that's it for this week. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. We'd love to hear from you, so send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, please, please, please be sure to subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcast today. Um, if you want to get in touch with us for consulting purposes, check us out at, uh, you can check me out at nasconsultants.com and rob at Consulting.com. Folks, Rob is hosting a DEI metrics measurement and reporting masterclass on May 11th. Check it out. The details can be found at climateforDEI.com. Thanks again to our guest, Jonathan Kaufman. We will be back next week. Be well. If you do, I want to hear-